Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. In today's episode, I speak to Joshua, for whom a wonderful practice of relating to self is sitting in complete silence. Enjoy. Joshua, welcome. Thank you, Joachim. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Um, as is my custom, I will say a few words about who you are and how we've met. And then maybe you can do the same. So Joshua and I first met in the south of Spain in the summer of 2019 at a global summit of Sandbox. And this is a common theme, as this is not the first guest on my podcast that I've met there for the first time. And well, for the story, um, I interviewed Joshua for his application to enter Sandbox. And I remember that being a very nice conversation that went well beyond the scope of an interview. And I immediately felt like, hmm, this is a person I want to have more conversations with. And then that happened. And we've been in touch well, ever since. We have this incredible, um, beautiful, I would say almost a, a ritual that every week we get together with a couple of people and we have a conversation. And we call that Friends Day. And um, we've been doing that for, I think, almost a year now since the pandemic started. So I, I think of that as an important part of my week. So Josh, thanks for that and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so funny. Like my natural tendency, I realize, is to talk over people. And I want to just like immediately jump in and like be contrarian. And I think my normal conversational stylings are to step on people's toes. So we're going to see how that goes in this special occasion. Um, it is a pleasure to be here. It's not every day one gets to be invited to have a conversation with a little more of an audience. I met you, like you said, back then, like you take it back. It sounds like it was so recent, 2019, but I guess a lot has changed then, since then. Mm -hmm. um, I think the thing that really stands out that was so interesting about the dynamic is like you were saying, you were interviewing me. It felt a little bit like you held the keys. You were the final gatekeeper to a thing that I wanted this like proper sandbox membership. So I would love to have a recording of that conversation. Sadly, I didn't remember to record that one. Um, what I remember about it, and the, to me, the thing that's really come out about you over the course of the year is one, how little we talk about work or what we do. It's more about who we are. And when I think about you, a big aspect of it, I have a friend who has a framework where she talks about like charisma is a mixture of warmth and strength. And you meet a bunch of warm people in the world. And it's a lovely thing to meet a warm person and they cook you dinner and they give you a hug. And it's an interesting thing to meet a strong person. But when you can mix the two of those together, there's a really powerful kind of synergizing energy. And I think you embody both of those traits beautifully. And then 
you push that a little further. So it's really nice to see you sharing that with the world through this lens. And I'm still kind of fascinated and perplexed by the boundaries that you keep as somebody with some really questionable boundaries. So I've always respected that about you. So I'm really curious to hear more about some of that aspect of attending to one's own needs as I was exploring all the different pieces that we could talk about. So anyway, I'm a fan. I do get to share my Wednesday mornings. Usually it's around 7 a.m. New York time. So uh, you always get to see me in a state of disarray. I was thinking it's kind of funny now that you get to see me you know, properly showered and cleaned as opposed to <laughs> normal hangout time. So, Amazing. Yeah. Without further ado, let's jump in. Hopefully I can still keep some of that 7 a.m. frazzled brain. To keep yes. Going. Yes. I like that frazzled brain of yours. And thank you, Joshua, for your kind words. I, I really appreciate it. That's wonderful to hear. And indeed, the subject of boundaries is a juicy one. And I'm very happy to get that reflection from you that I apparently have healthy boundaries because for many decades, I would say I have struggled with that strongly. So that's great feedback. But so yes, let's dive in. Um, this podcast is called Relating to Self. So it's all about how we relate to ourselves. The subject of self-love comes up often. And my first question would be, when you hear the words relating to self, what does that mean to you? I'm so glad you didn't say, when you hear the words self-love, what does that mean? <laughs> like, that would be a lot harder for me to answer with a straight face. Relating to self, I mean, what I love about it, um, I was in an altered state uh, right before the pandemic kicked in. And I was reflecting on this idea of relationships. And the thing that I concluded is that everything is a relationship, right? You're, the, the people use this word relationship to mean romance, right? And you say, oh, we're in a relationship. And I say, look, you're in a relationship with your mailman. You're in a relationship with your former employer. You're in a relationship with all these different people in the world. Those different relationships have different rules. And after thinking about it more, I realized like, yes, like not only are those all relationships, but as you say, you're in a relationship with yourself. You can listen to yourself. You can silence yourself. So really looking at that sense of how do you treat yourself as opposed to how you treat other people to me is really eye-opening. And I think oftentimes there's a big discrepancy there and people's self-talk is so much crueler to themselves than they would never say such things to their friends. And to me, it's really powerful to realize it's a relationship. You can work on that relationship. You can change that relationship. So calling it, you know, relating to self to me is, is really, really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. I, I can't agree more. I, I thought about this idea of relationships with everyone and basically also everything in your life as, as the core of how to navigate the world. And then indeed as an extension of that, how do I relate to myself? That has been an important question for me in the past years. I wonder how your relationship with yourself in these terms has evolved in the recent past, because, um, well, at least for me, it feels as if it took me quite a while to get to this kind of like lens to see relationship. You know, I used to be, let's say someone who thought of a relationship as something I have with a partner or a romantic partner. And then all the rest of the, the people in my life were more, 
I would say functional, like they had labels that were like smaller categories. And that was a very different reality that I, I felt quite trapped in and not very happy with. And so I wonder if you have a similar journey uh, throughout your life of evolving your viewpoint of what relationships look like in your life. Hmm. The thing that really comes to mind is about change. Or like when I was thinking and reflecting before this conversation, I was thinking about the stories of self that we tell ourselves, right? Of like, mm. how did I become this way? I became this way because my parents were this way and our family has a very strong identity of X, Y, Z. And realizing that's so much the narrative of traditional old school therapy, right? And saying there's a, a kind of linear causality. X happened and now Y. And I, to me, the most interesting thing is realizing again you can change those rules you can change those stories that you tell yourself and even for a relationship like a romantic relationship right big people have this thing of your partner had an affair your partner had a crush on somebody else ergo the relationship has to end and i think realizing you can just change those rules you can say like this person had an affair and i'm choosing to stay with them this person did did something that I don't like and I can now choose my response. And to me, that's part of like the, the higher brain as opposed to like the reflexive automatic brain. And I think really looking at how those relationships change over time and saying like, you can proactively shape them and sculpt them. It feels super relevant. I feel like I have not answered your question at all. And you know what? That That's that totally fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love these kind of like organic conversations. And what you say makes a lot of sense. Um, what comes up for me is something like the way that you describe these reframing of relationships that you have with others. That's also possible with yourself, right? Like the way you treat yourself. And so I'm, I'm curious in, in your life specifically, how have you reframed your relationship with yourself, if at all? Yeah. Well, like one of the things you and I talk a lot about um, our parents, right, mm -hmm. in our history, and it, it comes up as a motif, maybe not as the subject, but it, there's still an allusion to, you know, like how we got this way. And I think one simple way that I've changed my relationship with myself is just to stop telling some of those stories. And say like, you know what, it doesn't necessarily serve me anymore to keep putting this idea in the narrative in the world. And to me, that almost stops feeding that, that narrative of who I am. How have I changed my relationship to myself? I think there's so many different identities that can fall into right i was talking about the storytelling there and the past i find that when i hang out with family members it's very easy to revert to previous roles and identities that when i was a teenager i acted like this and when i hang out with my aunt and uncle who i used to hang out with as a teenager i'll slowly slip back into those modes and like one way that i've really enjoyed altering those things right if going backwards to an old place and old relationships drags you back to your emotional state. I've really been into kind of outside to inside transformation 
right? I feel like a lot of modern self-help, you read a book and you say, change your mindset and you will become a different person, right? And the way that I've been thinking about it is almost the opposite of like, change your circumstance, go to Spain, surround yourself with different friends, put on different clothes, different apartment, different job, different stories, and you will have this outside to inside transformation. And I really, I found it very effective if there's something you want to change about yourself. Um, when I look at like the, a lot of the pieces, when I was younger, I always felt like an outsider. I think that's a, a big part of a lot of my friend group. Like a lot of people who were first generation or they came from somewhere else and they always kind of sat at the edges of things. And I've kind of reclaimed that identity. And I think I perhaps enjoy being an outsider. I think that if stage one is feeling like an outsider and wanting to be on the inside and stage two is feeling good about being an outsider and enjoying my identity as you know, not a part of things. Stage three is moving closer to the inside and not getting too caught up in that identity as outsider and just kind of like enjoying being in the middle of things. And like that stone state that I was talking about before, one of the things I realized was with those relationships, I realized I was avoiding all sorts of different kinds of relationships. People talk about being avoidant in romantic relationships. And I realized I was being avoidant in professional relationships. So actually learning how to get a little closer to not have to be in the driver's seat, to not have to be an entrepreneur and be closer to the middle to me was a really interesting change of self-identity. And so, and I keep, don't get me wrong, reverting to my sense of outsiderness. But. <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing, Joshua. There's a lot of juicy stuff in there. One, one thing I would like to dive deeper into is that you said that you stopped yourself from telling these stories about yourself, specific stories about yourself, right? And I wonder how, like, do you have a specific protocol for that? Are there certain exercises or practices that you've engaged in to help yourself to change your self-narrative? Sure. Mm. It's a lot of different angles that one could take. Like I find... One fun way, and it's funny, you, you did this at the beginning of the podcast. Let's say we're at a party and somebody says, Josh, what do you do? I can say, oh, I'm Josh. I live in Brooklyn. I'm a product designer, blah, blah, blah. I've told that story a thousand times. Um, hearing your friend tell your story can give you a, a different sense of who you are and what defines you. Is it really Brooklyn? Is it really what you do for work? Is it some other really curious attribute of your your own. So I think letting other people tell your story is a really nice approach to just kind of like get yourself out of your rut of self-identity. Is that something you've actually done? Have you oh, specifically yeah. asked friends like, Hey, could you tell my story just to reframe my, my narrative? Um, I did that when I was trying to repitch myself professionally, like I right. did a professional reinvention a while back. So I had a, a friend who's like a kind of Ted talk writer, ghost writer kind of guy. So we did a little hour-long jam on that, which was fun. Um, but no, this is actually something that I will do at parties. If somebody says, Josh, what do you do? And I'll say, Joachim, please, I'm so sick of talking about what I do. Can you explain what I do? And I will in turn explain what you do. And part of what's cool about it is you can brag about the other person shamelessly, right? Like you know, the rules of propriety dictate that you're not supposed to talk about how, what a super genius you are. 
right? You know, if you published a book, you're supposed to say, you know, I'm an author. They, they say, oh, did you have a book come out? Whereas I can be like, Joachim wrote the greatest book I've ever read, right? It's hilarious and yet insightful and it sold a zillion copies. And then he got flown to New Zealand and he got to meet the Pope of New Zealand. <laughs> you're not supposed to say that. So I can brag about you and then you can brag about me. So like from that perspective alone, there's a level of self-appreciation that you get because you can actually, you can take off that mock humility. Um, I really like keeping it real with conversations like this. So um, I have an interesting thing where my, my mom and my stepfather have both passed away. And for a while, I was very loath to say that because I found it was, I was kind of, uh, it's crazy to say I was embarrassed about the fact that I, you know, my parents were passed away, deceased, dead. Um, you can see I'm still finding it a little tricky to talk about. In part, I think because they were so much a part of myself, my narrative of self, right? Of like, my parents met at art school and I also went to art school and just learning how to excise the first half of that sentence and just say like, I went to art school and it doesn't have to be this whole family identity. It can be a little more like I rather than we, when my default is we. So that's an, perhaps even a separate future threat of mm. I versus we. But yeah, that's for me a big part of it. What I, what I can't help myself but here when you speak is a certain playfulness in the approach of your identity it's like this there's a certain freedom there that i yeah. almost envy you know um how how does that playfulness manifest when when you think about how you relate to yourself is it do you think it's a mask is it something that you use to hide or is it the opposite is it something that you use as self-exploration i think I definitely use plenty of masks. Like I'll use humor as, you know, a means of self-defense. I think it's actually possible to use oversharing as a means of self-defense and a mask. It's kind of contradictory. Um, I am pretty extroverted. I go to a lot of events and I think I literally just would like to figure out how to make each conversation a little fresher. And I think there's, um, If conversation is fractal and you don't know where it's going to go, there's something really neat about starting with a different germ, right? If you keep starting with the same germ of a conversation, you know, I make software, I make books, I'm an artist, whatever it is, the conversations will tend to fractally branch in those same directions. So like another, for some reason, you know, maybe one part of relating to self, I do seem to have some complicated issues explaining what I do for work as evidenced by the workshop, as evidenced by the fact that I have my friends explain what I do. So sometimes when people ask me, what do you do? I'll instead retort with like, everybody's answered that question a million times. Let's talk about what I don't do. And there's a million things that you don't do. And that from a conversational perspective can just grab the wheel and make things really kind of like interesting and random. So Maybe it's probably one part guardedness, one part playfulness, one part, let's see where this thing goes. It sounds as if you're relating to self-practice is also quite good at giving yourself interesting interactions and 
new information. And, you know, it, it feels to me as if you feed on novelty and your relationship with yourself has kind of like molded itself around that almost. Yeah, I th I'll take that. <laughs> it's a little, it's damning if you do it wrong. But yes, I have an expression where I say like, I don't like to reuse sentences. Right. And just like it's really, it's an interesting verbal challenge to come up with a new way of saying something. And sometimes you'll find a really juicy turn of phrase of which I have many. And sometimes you just keep falling back on them. Mm. Um, and it's neat when your friends start quoting you to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds I have, awesome. I have, I have one little idiom where I say the future is unknowable, right? Like I like spontaneous plans and people are like, so you know, are you going to go on that date this weekend? I say the future is unknowable. I hope to, but who knows? So I keep falling back on this little phrase, the future is unknowable, mm -hmm. perhaps reinforcing it as you know, a self pattern. Is that something that would also point at a difficulty with commitment? Sure. But no, like, honestly, it's, it's, I think I'm actually quite punctual. I think it really is just more due to the stochastic nature of New York and things happen. Yeah. Um, well, this sounds all like very Josh-like. I, I love this, you know, the whole playfulness, the, the whole yeah. like making sure that you have interesting new conversations all the time. Yeah. But let's, let's go to the shadow side of that for, for a yeah, second. Yeah, and I'm interested if, well, not if, but which are the parts of relating to yourself that are the most difficult for you? I immediately want to start telling stories about my parents. <laughs> so that rewinds us to the beginning of the conversation. But I, I think one thing that comes to mind is we had a very strong family identity, my extended family and I, around doing stuff about being productive and generative. So to me, if I'm not making art, if I'm not being productive, I feel a certain inner frustration and a certain blockedness. And like I found a poem a couple of years ago. It's the world's shortest poem. It's one line from a Russian guy. It said, wrote nothing today. Doesn't matter. <laughs> and I found it so electric because it's like, to me, it, it, if my identity is that of somebody who makes something and I'm not making something, then what am I? And I think that's where you get into this realm of human being versus human doing. And it's so easy in New York to be active and to be busy and to have that identity of like, what do you do as opposed to who are you? Mm. So, so that's part of the shadow self. Um, but I mean, I think a lot of people wrestle with that, not just mm. my parents. Yeah. I'd also like to think of, who am I becoming in terms of not really fixating on who I am right now, because that's only one aspect of it, but then who am I becoming like, or who do I want to become? And then that means what am I doing right now that will lead me to become this other person uh, tomorrow or next week or whatever it is. Exactly. Although it's very future centric and I'm super future centric. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Don't, don't try to seduce me with this tales of who am I becoming. All right. Josh, I'm interested. Yeah. Are there, are there any relating to self practices or rituals or routines that you nurture and are attached to? Oh, yeah. Um, 
Hmm. Here's a weird one that I've been doing lately that, you know, there's always the obvious answers, but I'm trying to, again, like use sentences I haven't used before. Like I've been really enjoying total silence lately insofar mm. as Brooklyn affords us silence. Whereas, you know, like I have nice speakers and I enjoy listening to music and having a wide variety of things to listen to. And I think just the experience of, oh, if I want to be poetic, I'm going to call it listening to the sunlight, right? But just like sitting there in the morning without any audio. And I think like music kind of sets the tempo for our life and our time. And like, I've always used music as a little bit of um, a mind altering substance, right? That you can, if you're feeling a little sad, you can reinforce the sadness by listening to some sad music and then maybe even work through it. And just the idea of like removing that external stimulus, I find really satisfying. Um, I like, I tend to do morning pages and journaling, but Everybody does that. <laughs> well, that would be nice if that were true. Hmm. Uh, I'm curious about some of your own practices. Hmm. Turn that microphone back at you. It's so fun to be interviewed, but it's even more fun to put the spotlight back in the mirror. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, well, right now, I think there's only three practices that I have that I'm consistent with. One is meditation. I meditate every day for about half an hour now. Mm. Although I have to be honest, and it's not always as meditative as I would like it to be. Like mm. sometimes, you know, I just sit and it feels like so many thoughts come up that it doesn't really feel like meditation, but that's okay. I just, I'm compassionate with that. Um, the second one is journaling. I, I write every day. And then the third one is what I would call deep work a state of distraction-free, focused time to explore a subject that I find interesting or important in that time. And that usually gravitates towards work. But well, as you know, work is a bit of a strange thing for me because I, I choose what I work on anyway. So it's a lot of the stuff that I'm really interested in becomes work because I just put time and energy into it. Um, but so these, these three, the meditation, the journaling and the deep work are the ones that I'm consistent with right now. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And then of course there's the, there's the, the practice of love for weeks, which is a program that I've designed a very, very simple program where I help people to foster more self-love, you know, by taking a small moment every day to do something that is an expression of self-love to mm. just stand still for a second and think like, okay, I'm going to drink this cup of tea right now. And that is an act of self-love because I care about myself and I'm thirsty. So I'm going to give myself this wonderful tea and then capture that moment and mm. make something that is like, you know, intentional and then bring gratitude to that moment. And that's something I've been engaging in now for a couple of months. And I really like that practice as well. I really feel it it changes the way I perceive reality in a way that brings a lot of joy and gratitude to other moments of my life as well. Hmm. It's, it, I think the thing that I was you know, talking about, like sitting in silence actually is akin probably the most mm -hmm. to that last one. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Um, but there is something more though about silence. And I think uh, that is something that we underestimate because we are, 
used to being in such noisy environments and well, you know, living in New York for you, obviously that's, that's a big thing. I think for me, what happens if I am truly in silence, there is a, a different layer of my consciousness somehow that gets space that isn't loaded with information. And in that way, new thoughts or different thoughts can come up. And I'm curious if that's something that is part of your listening to the sunlight practice as well. Mm, very much so. Yeah, I think like just creating a space, right? Like I, I do like the journaling and the notebook time. Um, oftentimes I'll do that with a cup of coffee. And I think it's about creating a space for like the little ideas and like feelings to grow. Right. And like um, for a while I was calling that practice thinking. And I'd, lately I've been calling it more ref reflecting. Right. And like I was, I wrote an essay about it called Thinking with Paper. And I really, I wrestle with that idea of, I think it's more about reflecting. You can reflect in your life. You can contemplate. And I think, you know, reflecting has a little more heart to it than just thinking. I like that. But a lot of it, you know, it really almost sits at the intersection of those three things that you talk about, right? Of it's one part meditation. It's one part, you know, just like clearing out space. There's something just very pure about seeing what happens in that. And it, as a commitment, as a habit. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. Mm. I'm interested to lean in a little more on this concept of self-love, which my brain was so mm. resistant to, mm. that phrase. Um, and like one piece that I'd wrestled with in the past, was at some point, so I'd always wrestled with different forms of self-acceptance, right? And like saying, always wanting to be a little more perfect. Um, I use the word shiny when I'm working with my therapist, right? And I, I remember sophomore year of college, uh, like I always disliked my hair and I dyed my hair blonde and I, yeah, like platinum blonde. And I felt oh. like this total dynamo. And it was really, really fun to have this part of my identity that I had found problematic and then kind of invert it. And I became super gregarious, got a new charming girlfriend who just like, I was, it was a very interesting, funny phase of my life. But it was very much about changing the way that other people perceived me to change the way that I perceived myself. And it was very conditional, right? And I think the idea of like, oh, if you can be creative and you can make things that people like, they will love you. Ergo, you will be worthy of love. It's a, it's a funny causality loop. So to me, part of the thing that's really interesting is learning how to be imperfect and to share things that you're not particularly proud of that are not your platinum blonde, shiny hair self, but instead you're just normal vanilla self. And to be a little more real and vulnerable. So self-love, the thing that was really interesting, I remember at one point going into an altered state, like I sound like the king of drugs over here, <laughs> going into an altered state, wanting self-acceptance and I, walking away with this message of like, what a meager goal that is <laughs> to merely seek acceptance, right? Of like, except, you know, it's like, Acceptance is barely passes the grade 
right? It's kind of the, there's a certain resignation to it, you know, as opposed to enthusiasm. So the idea of like self-enthusiasm, and then I think it doesn't have to be so excited to be yourself because you get to be yourself every day for the rest of your life. So it's more kind of like compassion for the hard times, mm. appreciation for the good times. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, self-acceptance, it's funny that we just use this term all the time. And it's like pretty, pretty slim pickings. Yeah, but to be fair, acceptance was really hard for me for a very long time. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to have like a passing grade on, on self-acceptance now. But to come to your point mm -hmm. of self-love, I think, yeah, um, as I've said many times before, I think love is a not very useful word because it means so many different things. And so in the concept of self-love, I think there's, there's one side that you could see as like this, you know, the unconditional love, which would be the complete acceptance of the self and um, seeing yourself as you truly are. But I think there's something also more simple about self-love that could be something like treating yourself lovingly. And I think you can treat yourself lovingly, even if you don't fully accept yourself. You can be kind to yourself. You can be compassionate to yourself. I think it's really important to be compassionate to yourself, especially if you don't accept yourself entirely as you are. Yet. <laughs> I always like to add yet, because obviously the, it's a striving. But so, yeah, self-love is a very vague um, cloud of different meanings and different behaviors and actions and feelings. And that's why, in general, I prefer to talk about relating to self because I feel relating to self always happens, no matter the state you're in, no matter how you feel, what you're doing, you always have a relationship with yourself. Also, when you don't love yourself, right? Which is why I think this is a more helpful concept, because I feel if we speak about self-love, then a lot of people will feel excluded because they don't have this subjective impression that they love themselves. But everyone will still have a relationship with themselves. And I think one of the things I am trying to point at in people is that even though this weird, this narrative about the, the feeling of love being this kind of like, you know, I'm in love and everything is butterflies and sunshine and rainbows, people don't experience that for themselves. And that's okay. But even in that state, you still do a lot of things that are expressions of self-love. You still care for yourself in many ways and bringing attention to those, bringing awareness to those, and then bringing gratitude to those generally really shifts the perspective of like, wait, I thought I didn't love myself, but actually I do. It's not about this grandiose feeling. It's about these small acts of treating yourself well. And that is, I think, one of the core messages that I want to spread by doing this. Mm-hmm. It's funny, like, I really enjoy the idea of treating yourself in the same way that you would treat a lover. Like you buy them, they see, they saw something that they wanted, they couldn't rationalize the purchase and you decide to buy it for them. Mm. And whatever that is, you know, like there are certain expenditures which feel just even a little slightly indulgent. But like one of, one of the things that both you and I love is like good teacups, good mm. pens. And the idea that you're going to use that pen every day, <laughs> you're going to use that teacup as part of your ritual. So every time you use it to imbibe this addicting caffeine in the morning, 
every time you use that pen to be creative and generative, there's a little piece of self-love and appreciation baked into it. So it's, it's pretty beautiful. It's kind of more amazing that more people don't buy themselves nice teacups and pens. Well, I guess it depends also on what your love language is, right? Because when you speak about, you know, giving a gift to your lover, I think some lovers appreciate gifts, but other lovers prefer just presence or touch or whatever it is. And so I think right. it's important to also find out for yourself, what is your love language to yourself? What do you want yourself to show up as in order to feel that you love yourself? It could be buying a nice pen or buying a nice teacup, but for other people, it might just be give themselves permission to take an hour off in the middle of the day and go for a walk. Mm -hmm. And that's also, I think, a very important aspect of what I'm trying to explain to people is that everyone is different. There is no cookie cutter solution for improving your relationship with yourself or for finding self-love. It's all about figuring out what works for you, looking inside and seeing what you need and then being honest and truthful to what it is that you need. Mm. I think a lot about the idea of permission, right? Like, mm. let's say you really like this $100 pen, right? And you could not rationalize that purchase. Me buying you that pen, right? It's $100. It's a non-trivial sum, but it's still a trivial sum in the cosmic scheme. I'm giving you not just the pen, but permission to own that pen. Right, somebody else would look at that thing and they'd be like, "Oh my god, dude, you have a hundred dollar pen. What are you fancy?" You're like, "No, no, no. Josh gave it to me." And you're like, "Oh, okay. Wow, that must be a hell of a guy, that Josh." But you're like, "Well, you know, I would never buy myself that thing." Permission is a really astounding thing, and the idea that you can give yourself permission to do that, whatever it is. I love that so much, Joshua. Yeah, I think that's awesome, and that very much resonates with me in the sense that. I feel I have that for certain things, like buying a pen, but I still yeah. resist that for other things. And one of the things that come up for me is like, if I travel somewhere and I need to find accommodation, I find it very difficult to gift myself the possibility of staying in a beautiful hotel room because I feel like, you know, all I'm going to do there is sleep anyway. So let's take something cheap, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I'm like, wait, no, context is important. I know this architecture is important. Design's important to me. I love the feeling of being in a beautiful place and still I have trouble of giving myself permission yeah. to give that to myself. So thank you for bringing that up. That's really beautiful. Mm. Just edit out every other part of the podcast and just put <laughs> that part right there front and center. This will be the highlight. This makes me really curious, Josh. Yeah. What, is, what is a thing that you recently gave yourself permission for that was difficult? So many things. I treated myself to a much nicer apartment. We've talked about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I think a lot about the deferred gratification system that is Western civilization, right? That you're supposed to work really hard now so you can enjoy things later. I said, look, it's a pandemic. Stay home. Enjoy where you are. And there's this other Joshism an embarrassment of riches, right? And like trying to figure out how to feel comfortable with the idea that I have this very shiny bobble of an apartment. And ultimately, like I remember being so profoundly conflicted about it the week before it, 
you know, making this decision. Spend money, commit to New York. Don't spend money, leave New York, blah, blah, blah. And it's a gift that I get to use every day. So it's pretty neat. And it's challenging self-definition. We were talking about you know, outside to inside change. Yeah. Well, it sounds like what was difficult about this was first the financial part, and then second, this idea of commitment to being in this place for a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did you overcome these? So the financial thing, I mean, it's very much, I think it comes up partially because of your mention of the hotel, right? It feels very similar to that. Deep. One interesting part, let's get really psychoanalytical here, shall we? Um, I grew up with very little money, almost no money. And I, th my mom for most of her life still had basically no money. And I think I was self-censoring the nice things in my life, right? Or that's where I even wanted permission to have a nice object, right? Like an Apple watch or something stupid that's like $500, an iPhone when it came out. And almost wanting to rationalize that expense and realizing I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need to bottle it up. So I think that was an internalized habit that I'd had over many years and realizing that this is not um, for somebody else. It was for me. That was a big part of it. The committing to New York part, I think it was me about um, security seeking. And this is one of the things that I found that I'm very counter cyclical. Um, when the world is really stable, I feel really comfortable being chaotic and not having an apartment and living out of a suitcase. When the world is unstable, I like to, you know, kind of like plant and like go back to a core. So I think a lot of it was about that. Mm. It is ironic that so many of my friends and the world is now living the way that I lived three years ago, like being nomadic and getting on planes. So it's a, a funny inversion. Hmm. It sounds like your, your method of working through these difficulties for yourself is quite cognitive. It's something hmm. that you sit with and think, and then you're, you know, you have a beautiful narrative about it. Hmm. It is, it is pretty cognitive. That is one of my questionable superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> I do think some of it is post-facto rationalization on what your gut is telling right. you. Right. Like, I hear you. Yeah. Like you, like I've always, you know, it's not that I pick my friends because they conform to my patterns, but when I meet somebody and I get along with them really well, I'll then discover, oh, actually they totally pattern match the other people that I get along with. So. Yeah. Let's talk for a second about this gut that you just mentioned, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm always fascinated by this because it's something I'm still learning to tap into more myself, this idea of living from the gut or trusting your intuition or whatever you want to call it. What is your relationship with your gut feeling or your intuition? It's funny because everybody, you know, says that I'm so theoretical and intellectual, but I actually think I'm really gut first, um, like particularly with people, particularly with professional choices. Um, I literally have a very good sense of direction. Like I always know which way north is and I don't know how it works. I just do. And good at kind of like finding things by um, what sailors call dead reckoning, right? Where you don't have the data and you don't necessarily get to see the stars, but you just kind of have to like intuit over there that that's where it is. So I spend 
a lot of my time in that zone. And then, I don't think I was describing with the people, the pattern matching, right? Like you get along with somebody really well. Like there's some, there's a woman at a dinner party last night and I thought she was great. And then I find out that she's an architect. I'm like, of course she's an architect. I have so many architect friends. Like she kind of looks and acts and smells like an architect, even though I had no data until like the last 15 minutes of the evening that she was an architect. So it, it's a little bit like that, that like I always, another Joshism, I say that the nose knows and the tip of your nose knows certain things. And like, I use that sense of smell metaphorically to describe intuition. I love it. I love that phrase, the nose knows. Great. Well, Josh, we're, we're nearing the end of this conversation. Um, traditionally, I, <laughs> yes, I know time flies when you're having a good conversation. <laughs> Um, uh -huh. there's one more question that I always ask people that I find interesting. Maybe it's a bit cliche by now, but what's the one question that you would have loved to receive, but that I didn't ask? Oh, here's a nice little paradox for you. Who would you be if you weren't who you are? <laughs> really kind of like tie you in knots. Um, I'll... I'll answer that in an interesting paradox. So I've alluded to my parents too many times for somebody who says that we shouldn't keep using these stories of self. Um, my parents were young when they had me. I was an accident when they were in art school. And there was, I found out as an adult, a plan to put me up for adoption. And that plan existed until a week after I was born. And where it was just kind of like, this is what we should do. And you know, particularly if you're a person who derives a lot of their identity from their family and who they were, you say, who would you be if you were raised by a totally different set of parents? Is my art nature intrinsic to me? Is it baked into me, nature versus nurture? Or the fact that my parents were working artists that somehow influenced me? There's no way to know. It's like a little contradiction, but it's a fun answer. So can I ask you the same question before we run out of time? <laughs> who would you be if you weren't who you are? There's a different reality in which I did not follow my heart when I was 17. So um, throughout my high school years, I was very good at sciences and mathematics. And my father, who was a mathematics professor all his life in the department of civil engineering at university, kind of expected that I was going to become a civil engineer. So that was my path. That was kind of, you know, there was no doubt. Everybody knew I was good at it. I was interested in it. I, you know, I was fascinated by technology and stuff. So that was my path. And at the time, there was a an entrance exam uh, that I took and I passed. So... I could go and make things, you know, real by signing a document saying that, yes, I will be a civil engineer. And then on the way to doing that, I felt something and I couldn't really define it back then. I was 17. Like, what did, what did I know? But then my mother asked me like, Hey, you look a bit off what's going on. And I was like, well, I don't really know, but, mm -mm -mm. and then, well, long story short, um, I ended up studying music and music composition instead, which was like a really big curveball at the time. And so I guess there is an alternate future in which I wasn't truthful to that feeling. And I just enrolled in university and became a civil engineer 
And I have no idea what that life would have looked like, but it would have been a very different one for sure. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, right? Like I love those moments. I mean, to me, it still sounds very gut driven, that choice. Yeah. Right. And like the forcing function of society to squeeze you in, squeeze you in versus every little bone in your body saying like, no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Josh, this was, um, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with me. My pleasure. One more thing before we part, is there anything that you would like to share with the audience? Um, Can they follow you somewhere? Can they read you somewhere? What would you like them to do? Uh, I don't have a huge online presence, but I do have a, a joshuak.com. Um, my last name is spelled K-E-A-Y. So joshuakeay.com. And there's some essays and writings up there, but they're kind of hidden. But I'm going to put them at joshuak.com slash essays. But in the meantime, you can just look at all the shiny stuff that's like the visual art and the books and the stories and the schemes on the front page. So take a peek. And this is me publicly committing to sharing my writing more publicly. Amazing. I love it. Thank you so much, Josh. Pleasure, man. (laughs) Ciao. Bye. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks.